This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 227, Babylon. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. From Nimrod to Saddam Hussein, Babylon has implications far beyond its walls. It's one of the most important cities in human history, and in the Bible as well. This week we will consider the great harlot of Revelation, PG-13 rated, I promise. Babylon American style and how it slash we might fall. Babylon's contribution to the wonders of the world, or maybe not. And how blame and credit flow in different speeds and directions, both in board games and in life. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Revelation 17 and 18 describes a woman identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. She represents the epitome of human indulgence and success, and more specifically, one who reaches this level of opulence at the expense of the people of God. Spoiler alert. In the end, she meets with destruction that is as spectacular as her life was, sudden, public, and astonishing. For 2,000 years now, scholars have debated who specifically Babylon refers to. Is she Rome? Is she Jerusalem? Is she the Catholic Church? Personally, I think the whole point is that this sort of character recurs throughout human history. There are always forces at work in the world that seem as prosperous as they are grotesque. But if you want to talk about one particular kingdom that fits the bill better than any other, one that reeks with application for our brethren today, I say quit working so hard. Look to Babylon itself. The Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's day was the envy of the world. Nebuchadnezzar himself was the head of gold, according to Daniel 2.38. And the vision of Daniel 4 was a warning shot across the great king's bow. You cannot live in luxury, indifferent to the needs of others, blaspheming the true God of heaven, and expect to survive. Recompense is inevitable. Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of Daniel 4 that he's learned his lesson, and I like to think he was sincere. But the machinery he left behind was as debauched as he was. And when God's justice finally caught up with Babylon, it shocked the world. It didn't shock Jeremiah and the people of God, though, or at least it shouldn't have. In Jeremiah 51, verses 61 through 64, just after Zedekiah the puppet king was hauled away into captivity with most of the rest of what remained of Judah, Jeremiah gave a message to Sariah the quartermaster. It described in detail the horrors God had in store for the nation that had treated his people so horribly. He told Sariah to read the message for the exiles in Babylon, and then attach a rock to it and throw it into the Euphrates River, and say, in the same way, Babylon will sink and never rise again because of the disaster I am bringing on her. They will grow weary. This scene is recreated in Revelation 18.21, when an angel throws a stone into the sea and says, in this way, Babylon the great city will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The point is not that God will defeat his enemies in the future. At least that's not the whole point. The point is God has always destroyed his enemies. God's people have always been underdogs. Babylon has always been the heavy favorite. But if you trust in God to see you through your challenges, you will be vindicated and rewarded in the end. Babylon has two great appeals, inevitability and carnality. We look at the world around us and we despair of ever seeing things turn in our favor. Reducing the level of sin in Babylon is like taking sand off a beach. Fighting against it is like pushing back against the tide. Sorry, it's summer. I guess my metaphors are reflecting that a bit. 
And while frustration builds, you can't help noticing that a lot of people really like Babylon. In fact, they wouldn't want to live anywhere else. You think maybe you quit on worldliness a little bit too quickly. But God has two great retorts, faith and spirituality. He says we are winning this battle, not losing. The outcome is already predetermined. Babylon fell long before Revelation was written, even before Jeremiah put pen to papyrus. Babylon fell in the Garden of Eden when God made a promise to the serpent and by extension to Adam and Eve. And God keeps his promises. He has to because he cannot lie, as we read in Titus 1 verse 2. And the appeal Babylon offers is nothing more than the allure of a harlot. The foreign woman in the first part of Proverbs is the precise opposite of the woman of wisdom. She flatters, she bats her eyes, she promises short-term pleasures beyond compare. But even if she keeps her promises, and often she does not, Proverbs 5.5 tells us her feet go down to death. The path God wants us to take, the quest for true wisdom, enhances our lives on a much deeper level. We begin with the fear of God, Proverbs 1.7, and we go from there to adopt all the traits of God. Grace, patience, steadfastness, honesty, integrity, love, and many other similar traits. These may not seem to give us the short-term pleasures of Babylon, but then that's not really what you want, not if you're living in the Spirit. To borrow from Joshua 24.15, you need to choose today who you're going to serve. The road to Babylon may have countless blessings strewn along the way, but the streets of gold will not be found there. They are for those who are on a different road entirely, one that leads to heavenly glory, one that was walked by Jesus Christ himself. Choose wisely. This is what I've been reading. I'll be honest, I bought a copy of Alas Babylon for three reasons. I recognize the title. I was planning a Babylon-themed episode for the podcast, and I saw a used copy on sale for $2. I'm glad I found a way to put all three of these things together, because I just finished Alas Babylon last month, and I fully expected to make my top 10 list for 2023. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Alas Babylon takes its name from a code phrase given by one character in the book named Mark to his brother Randy. The year is 1959, and tensions are high. Mark works in military intelligence, and he thinks he might be able to see a nuclear apocalypse far enough ahead of time as to give warning and maybe save a handful of people, including Randy. The code phrase itself, of course, is taken from the Bible. As boys, they had sneaked into church, a trend I would like to encourage, by the way, to hear a particular hellfire preacher go on about humanity's decline and God's inevitable response. Mark told his brother years later, half-jokingly, if I ever send you a message that includes the phrase, Alas, Babylon you'll know it's the end of the world. And then one day it wasn't a joke anymore. Last Babylon is not an especially preachy book. It's not religious in its nature. But it does deal directly with mankind's excesses and the comeuppance that inevitably follows. Randy lives in a fictitious Florida town called Fort Repose, too small to be either a civilian or military target for the Soviets. He and his neighbors survive, but they have no power. They quickly run out of gasoline. The stores of food Randy was able to put away are gone in relatively short order. They're forced to build a new world for themselves. And some of his fellow victims become bigger problems than starvation, radiation, and isolation combined. Babylon may have been destroyed at the highest levels, but it was still in the hearts of plenty of its citizens. More spoiler alerts. The Americans won the war, 
at least as much as you can win a nuclear war. You find out on the last page that the Soviets got it way worse. Still, like Babylon of old, they lived long enough to be instruments of God's justice against a wicked, rebellious nation. One story particularly grabbed me. The local politician is nicknamed Porky. The symbolism in the last Babylon is not especially subtle. Porky dies from radiation, which was not a problem where they were living. Turns out he had made a trip to contaminated zones and looted the jewelry stores. Of course, heavy metals such as gold, silver, and platinum are sponges for nuclear radiation. He poisoned himself to death with the same attitude of carnality that led to the destruction in the first place. And he was only one of many. Another man traded life-sustaining elements such as food, tools, and gasoline for a bunch of fancy radioactive watches. He wore them proudly all the way up his arm in a ridiculously ostentatious way. Can you imagine a sillier, more pathetic way to die, getting cancer from wearing seven or eight watches at a time? It did not escape my notice, though, that Porky's last name is Logan. Logan is also my middle name, so I was kind of forced to take the lesson to heart. The clear message of the book is that peace of mind achieved through hard work, honesty, and self-denial is worth far more than the comfortable, indulgent lifestyle to which I very much would like to become accustomed. Randy and his friends have an opportunity to leave Fort Repose at the end of the story and enjoy whatever comforts might be available in a post-apocalyptic America. They all choose to stay. I wonder if I would. I try to deny myself some indulgences from time to time just for practice. I tell myself I'm living for heaven and not for a more comfortable home here on earth. But sometimes I'm not sure. I do not pray for my world to be wiped out within my lifetime to enjoy the Jeremiah existence just to make sure my head is screwed on straight. But I do pray for contentment and gratitude and greater faith. I hope you're praying for that as well. Use whatever blessings God gives you to bring him honor. Don't build walls to shut him out. Babylon will fall one of these days. You may or may not live to see it. But there's no reason you should follow along with it. This is what I've been hearing. Most of you are likely aware that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is among the seven wonders of the ancient world. The story goes that Nebuchadnezzar built an incredible array of landscapes in his capital city. Flowers, trees, shrubbery, you name it. The Euphrates ran through Babylon, supplying lots of water. But like every other river in the world, the Euphrates runs downhill. The water in the Hanging Gardens allegedly flowed uphill. That's the story Plato told, anyway, when he put the original list together. The thing is, though, Plato never saw the Hanging Gardens. They did not exist in his day. In fact, scholars and archaeologists are stumped to find anyone who saw them. The other wonders have very specific records and artistic depictions. The pyramids of Giza, of course, are still standing. But the Hanging Gardens have vanished from history entirely, leading some to believe they never really existed at all. There is another theory, though one that's gotten a lot of traction in recent years. Some believe the Hanging Gardens were absolutely real, and absolutely as amazing as Plato said. But they were built by Sennacherib the Assyrian, not Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian. And they were built in the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, not Babylon. I saw a documentary about it a few weeks ago. It should be emphasized here, we're talking about structures built seven centuries before the birth of Christ. Calling the remains of the ancient city rubble is putting it mildly. The city is largely covered by modern buildings today, making a proper excavation impossible. The artifacts and documents that do exist leave plenty to the imagination. 
And the archaeologist leading up the operation clearly has a dog in the hunt, as do her documentarians. But this much is clear. Sennacherib built some pretty spectacular gardens. And absolutely nothing remains of them. God has quite the habit of bringing great men low. Sennacherib is a terrific example. You can believe what you want regarding whether Nebuchadnezzar has gone down in history for something someone else built a century earlier. But a better Sennacherib story can be found in the Bible. Isaiah 36-39 through tells us about Sennacherib's invasion of the nation of Israel. The northern tribes fell quickly, never to rise again. Soon afterwards, Sennacherib's armies were outside the walls of Jerusalem, threatening Hezekiah and Judah with the same treatment their northern brethren received. A character the Bible calls Rabshakeh, which is probably a title for the emperor's chief of staff, stood on the wall of Jerusalem and offered the people a choice between permanent exile and complete annihilation. Isaiah 36, 18 through 20 is especially significant. He says, quote, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, The Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? End quote. And if you're saying to yourself right now, I've never even heard of Hamath, Arpad, and Sepharvaim, you're kind of proving Rabshikeh's point. Nations disappear at Sennacherib's whim. But Hezekiah put his faith in God. He prayed to God for deliverance, and Sennacherib woke up to find 185,000 of his troops dead. When he went home to write the story of his conquests, he mentioned the fall of Samaria and various cities in Judah. He mentioned the siege of Jerusalem, but he never mentions how the battle of Jerusalem wound up. He managed to skip over that part. Today, precious few have ever even heard of Sennacherib. Assyria itself is gone. It may even be that his greatest accomplishment has been credited to someone else for the last couple of millennia. Pride truly does come before destruction. Precious few human wonders continue past their own time. I live about 200 miles from the so-called eighth wonder of the world, the Houston Astrodome, which now at less than 60 years old is an abandoned shell that's too much trouble to demolish. If you want to leave something behind that people will remember, think of the people who have made the biggest impact on your life and why they made that impact. Parents, teachers, coaches, people who made other people's lives better because they were part of them. Then do what they did for someone else. Leave a legacy of kindness, mercy, and love. Gardens die, all of them. Serve others, and you will live on. Serve Jesus, and you'll live forever. This is what I've been playing For the purposes of this segment, we will assume all the speculation we just discussed is flawed and that Nebuchadnezzar did actually build the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. Actually, the game we're talking about is just called the Hanging Gardens, so I suppose you can imagine that it's in Nineveh if you like, or Cleveland even. You do you. The point of the game is, you build the gardens level by level, and then you make sure they're all watered. Water eventually flows downward, even in the Hanging Gardens. The game does not worry so much about how the water gets to the top. It's about where it goes afterward. You get points for all the terraces that are being watered by the additions you made. If your efforts are more impressive than your opponent's efforts at the end of the game, that makes you Nebuchadnezzar, I guess. It's a weird sort of game, one Tracy did not take to at all. Hopefully the person we traded it to will have better luck with it. 
The concept of flow fascinates me, though, especially the flow of credit and blame. If I can be responsible for the lion's share of the success, or better yet, be perceived to be responsible, that bodes well for me and my future. So I need to make sure everybody makes a clear connection to me and that it stops with me. I get the glory, all of it. It's my garden. Blame works the same way, but in reverse. The people above me in the food chain are naturally going to try to make themselves look good. Funny how that becomes a bad thing when other people are doing it. So when things go wrong, they will let the blame flow downhill to my little cubicle. And when they do, I'd better be ready with my shovel, making a path for it to keep on flowing. I sure don't want to get stuck with it. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if the exact opposite happened? If credit flowed more easily than blame? What if the boss were eager to acknowledge the efforts of those who worked under his charge, and not just in a, we're all winners tonight, but I'm keeping the Oscar kind of way? I remember hearing about a Heisman Trophy winner who had his award cut into pieces so he could literally share it with his blockers. I wish I could remember who did it, although I suppose the fact that I can fits in better with the point I'm trying to make. Don't be afraid to take a back seat at your own victory celebration. Be the one who deliberately elevates others. Jesus says in Luke 14.10, the one who says, friend, move up higher, is the one who gets the glory that really matters. The meek individual we discussed in episode 223 is not worried about being underappreciated. He knows who his master is, and his master sees his good work and his humility. And what if the middle manager simply stood up and said, yes, we underperformed. That's on me. I will fix that. Granted, depending on where you're working, that might be the easiest way to lose your job. But then maybe that's a job you want to lose. A good work environment has overseers that take ownership of their own efforts and the efforts of those under their charge. Good upper management types see that and value it. Good workers see that and are motivated to try harder. Naturally, it doesn't always work perfectly. But a culture of fear and blame shifting can hardly help but fail. Surely the take responsibility route is worth a shot. That's certainly the case in local congregations. Overseers have souls in their charge for whom they will give account, according to 1 Peter 5, 1-4. Personally, I don't want to explain how it wasn't really my fault that souls were lost on my watch. I would rather do my best than look the Lord in the eye and ask for mercy, like David does in Psalm 51. Are you a blessing or a burden to those who are downstream from you? Spend some time today and do an honest assessment of your relationships. Proverbs 11.25 reads, A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. Instead of fretting about the water you aren't receiving yourself, try to make sure you're a supply of water to someone else. The refreshment you need will take care of itself. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.